Thank you, everyone. I'll hand over to Gerald now. Thanks. Well, good morning to the church, RBC, that is uh, gathered, even though we are fairly separated at the moment in different places. Um, Wally and John and others, I think, have been uh, doing a sterling job over the last, who would have believed, actually, I think this is the 16th week that we have been gathering like this, just talking to John a little bit earlier. Um, and so I think in that time that uh, Wally and John and others have become consummate experts in uh, live streaming preaching. Uh, this will be my first. I think this is a first. There's a lot of firsts in this particular time, isn't there? And I think who would have imagined, obviously, that uh, at the beginning of this year, that halfway through the year we'd be into the 16th week of this sort of arrangement. And it looks like it's probably not going to finish any time quickly. But um, if you've been following along during that time, you'll know that uh, Wally particularly and John and I think Sean have helped as well in the series on James, which John just wrapped up last week. Um, so, as John mentioned, while he's coming back next week uh, or this week, um, but probably uh, he won't be preaching next week as well. There's actually uh, myself and my wife Catherine doing a bit of a tag team preaching in the next few weeks. And we, we did it pretty much uh, at the beginning of the year as well. So uh, the order's around a little bit different, but nonetheless. If, if you think of the preaching that Wally's been doing and John in the series on James as the main course, then you could probably think about the next couple of weeks as the appetisers, the, um, the little bit of change that you have in between the main course. And so that's what we're going to be doing for this morning and for next week as well. John did ask me for a title. Uh, He just mentioned that we're going to be looking at John chapter 11. And so I scratched my head for a little bit and gave him the very, I think, innovative title, The Raising of Lazarus. Um, And you'll probably find that um, in in your Bibles as well. So that's the, that's the passage that I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at this morning. A little bit of, uh, as I said, an appetizer, something that's different from what we've been having in terms of this series. I'm not sure what Wally will be doing afterwards, but uh, I'm sure we'll be going into another series again. So the next few weeks is a little bit different, a little bit of a, an appetizer, as I mentioned. Um, to look at the chap- John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus, it's a fairly large chapter, uh, I have to admit that, and I did... I toss and turn a little bit trying to work out, well, what's the best way to do it? Because I could assume that we know the passage well and we know the story, but that's probably a bit dangerous. And there are some aspects there, some verses that I think it's worth reminding ourselves of. So I've come to a sort of a halfway point, which is to read a fair part of the passage or the chapter, but not read all of it. And so I want to actually break it into two sections from verse 1 up to 27 of chapter 11, John. And then we'll skip a little section in the middle and then we'll look at verses 38 to 44. So if you have your Bibles in whatever form you've got, maybe your printed Bibles or on your phones or whatever, um, then I invite you to uh, read along. 
I'll uh, I'll read it out as well in the dulcet tones that I have. But I trust that as we as we just review, as we remind ourselves about the passage, that the Lord will speak to us this morning. So let's have a look at John chapter 11, verses 1 to 27 and 38 to 44. And as far as I know, that's up on the um, on the screen as well. So you'll be able to follow that, or it's too small for you. Read it in your Bibles. So let's have a look at it this morning. Uh, it's titled actually in, in this uh, NIV that I have, The Death of Lazarus. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who per- poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And then let's just skip across to verses 38 to 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, 
Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend a little bit of time this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, even as you have spoken to us through the the text this morning. I pray that you would help us to understand the, in a sense, the depths and the riches that we can find in the scriptures as your spirit leads and guides us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, a number of years ago I used to read, before technology came into the vogue in the way it has, that I used to read the Age newspaper. Uh, I think it was actually before we went away to Africa and when we came back things had all changed. But I used to read the, the Age, the printed newspaper, that was the old days. Um, some people may still do that quite regularly. Uh, I tend these days to find the news, for better or worse, on the, the various news sites that you can get on the internet. So I haven't spent a lot of time in the last number of years poring over a printed newspaper. But uh, the Age newspaper had what was called the odd spot And this was a little passage, a little journalistic article, I think on a regular basis, maybe every day, uh, that it was printed out. And uh, it would just uh, highlight some odd, quirky thing from around the world. And on one particular um, paper that I read, there was the story of a woman in the USA who had been raised from the dead four times. She had four death certificates to prove it. Now, Doctors don't just hand out death certificates willy-nilly. You know, it's not something that they would, oh, you've got, you look like you're not doing too well, I'll write out a death certificate. Uh, there is very great legal consequences for doctors doing this. But nonetheless, this woman had four death certificates because she had a diabetic coma condition. And so she would go into these diabetic comas, which ostensibly, obviously, from all intents and purposes, when the doctors investigated and and uh, and attended, uh, looked like she had died. And so the doctors had duly written out four death certificates. Is Lazarus's case like this? Uh, Some people prefer this option. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe Lazarus was a case of early diabetic comas. Um, William Barclay, who is an old commentator of the scriptures, uh, preferred this sort of thing. Oh, he spiritualises this and other miracles in John. And so he would say, for example, well, Lazarus's death is the great sin which Jesus brought him back by through forgiveness. And so there's, a, you know, there's an attempt to... Surely he didn't bring someone really back from the dead there. And so there's an attempt to spiritualise it. Is this necessary? Do we have to do this? Uh, I think if we can believe that water can be turned into wine, if we can believe the healing of a lame man, then we can believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But there's no doubt that it is a top, if not the top, miracle. It's in fact the seventh miracle in John. And if you, if you read through the, the Gospel of John, you will find, and of course significantly different from the other Gospels, you'll find that there is a series of miracles that in a sense are markers along the way that Jesus 
performs. And um, if I was to ask you this morning, can you recount them all? You probably couldn't. In fact, I, if you were to ask me, I probably couldn't either. Of course, I could do it by reading through the text. But this uh, miracle, the raising of Lazarus, is the seventh miracle in the Gospel of John, and there is no doubt that it is the most well-known. Um, if you follow the AFL footy, you will probably have heard at various times when the footy commentators are relating or talking about a particular footballer that's had an injury and that has come back and it's been a significant injury and they came back and they have played amazing situa- amazing game that they'll say, well, this is a bigger comeback than Lazarus. And so even in the AFL footy world, um, I'm not too sure how many of the commentators are well-versed biblically, but at least they know about Lazarus. Um, I mentioned to Jack Bohr, one of the members of, of RBC, um, during this week, a little bit earlier, that I'd be preaching from uh, the, the Gospel of John on Lazarus. And uh, Jack said to me, oh, he says, I've got a Lazarus rap. Now, um, he gave me just a few stanzas before we actually got uh, waylaid and, and uh, moved off that topic, but uh, it was really good from, from what I could tell, but I didn't listen to the whole thing. So, if, if you're with Jack or um, you're interested, you can, and he probably wouldn't be too happy me mentioning this, but um, if you're interested, you could always ask Jack for his Lazarus rap. Um, either a, um, a rendition of it or a printed version. So there you go. There is a Lazarus rap. But this miracle comes at the climax of John's Gospel. Um, and if you look at and read through the whole of the Gospel, the, the climax comes in, in these chapters, particularly chapter 11 and 12. Um, and this miracle, I think, is the, I could refer to it as the straw that breaks the camel's back of the opposition of the Jews to Jesus. Jesus has been performing a number of miracles, but it comes to this one, the seventh miracle, and it is because of this great miracle that the Jews set themselves in opposition and it begins the path that eventually leads to the death, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. So it, is a, it comes at a climactic point in the Gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, of course, the question, what's the point or the, va- the value of this miracle story? Why does John record this here? Interestingly enough, because none of the other Gospel writers mention this particular miracle, and yet, as I've just said, it's a top miracle. Uh, the, this is the only Gospel that we find the story of the raising of Lazarus. There are references in Mark and Luke, the other Gospels, the two of the other synoptic Gospels, to miracles that are very similar. For example, in Mark and Luke we have the raising of Jairus' daughter and in Luke uh, as well there's a, another miracle of the raising, Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain. But the raising of Lazarus is the only account, uh, John's Gospel is the only account we find of this particular miracle. And so I want to look in, a, in the time we have, a few more minutes this morning, to look at three aspects of it. Um, and I have to confess that I am not one for alliteration, but I'm actually going to use it this morning. Um, I think that the danger I, or the, the hesitation I have is that it can sometimes be forced. And you know what I mean by alliteration, using the same letter to start sections or whatever. I'll give you them in a minute. Um, but I think they are here this morning without contriving too much. So I want to look at what this means, Lazarus's miracle, or, or the, the miracle of the raising of Lazarus in three areas. 
It reveals, I think, God's glory. It points us to God's goals for the disciples of Christ. And it demonstrates God's gift of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And I might just make a reference, of course, this morning we're spending some time in communion as well. And I think it fits that we can consider it from that aspect as well. So first, for God's glory. In John chapter 2, the first miracle is the miracle of changing the water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana. And it says this in chapter 2. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And then also here in chapter 11, Jesus indicates that in the case of Lazarus, God's glory will be revealed and through him as well, of course. Is it strange to think that death could reveal God's glory? Surely a healing would have done better. Lazarus is nearly at the point of death. Jesus comes along and raises him up. That's good. Um, Jesus does do that at other times as we see in the scriptures, but not here. And of course, we're in a a very interesting time, aren't we, with the whole situation of the contemporary focus on the COVID-19 pandemic that is not just affecting one country, but the whole world, essentially. And ultimately, of course, the thing that gives most alarm to most people is the potential for a high death rate. Um, The virus itself is not always and uh, to a great extent fatal, but it has a very high infection potential rate. And so there is this, um, the calculations and the statistics that people can do to work out just potentially, if we let it go rampant, just how many people will die. And so therefore there is this focus on preventing, to blunt it and to ultimately, if possible, eliminate it in order to avoid that potential for death. Because generally we see death as a defeat, as a place where God's glory is not seen. But I don't really think that's an accurate picture. I think there's a number of ways in which death can reveal God's glory. Uh, Firstly, for example, it shows God to be holy and just. Death is a punishment for sin. Romans 6.23 Sin came into the world and death through sin. And so death can be seen as a way in which God is seen to be holy and just. It's in Christ's death, though, of course, that forgiveness for all is obtained. And think of the testimony of what I can refer to as the saints in the face of death. I will never forget the story of the five missionaries, American missionaries to the Alka Indians, to a tribe called the Horani uh, in the 50s. And um, the story that was told about the self-sacrifice that they made to go and, and reach this tribe in the jungles of Ecuador and their subsequent martyrdom, uh, which was told through a book through Gates of Splendour by Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of one of those missionaries. And of course, at the time, as I was reading the, this book, um, I thought, well, what a waste. The potential was so fantastic in terms of those young missionaries. 
But ultimately it wasn't a waste. It was an acceptable offering that was holy and pleasing to God. They didn't go and set themselves out to die. That was not their plan. Their plan was to be effective in ministering the gospel. But that is what happened nonetheless. GTC, Gideon Theological College, where uh, my family went and where I taught in Sudan, is named after a martyred pastor in Sudan. And there is also, of course, the example that I can refer to of Polycarp. Um, Maybe you have heard of Polycarp, maybe you haven't. Polycarp was a a bishop, loosely so-called, that was the way they referred to the church leaders, in the the middle of the second century in what essentially now is Turkey. It's a place called Izmir. Uh, Now it was Smyrna. And Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, a well-known believer, a very influential believer. And he was, by the time he died, and he was martyred as well, he was in his late, uh, mid-late 80s. And there is the story told of how there was a, a, a local persecution in that area at the time against the Christian churches, and people were being rounded up, and eventually a mob called for, um, for Polycarp to be brought and he was brought into the stadium where they were essentially trying and executing by various means the Christians. And he was, as I said, an old man at the time. He was brought before the governor, the proconsul, and the, and the governor tried to dissuade him because all that the, had, these people had to do to avoid death was simply to renounce Christ and to swear to Caesar. And so the proconsul said to, to uh, Polycarp, look, you're, a, you're an old man, think about your situation Just curse Christ and you will be saved. And of course, uh, Polycarp had a a very famous reply. He says, 80, and I think it was 86 years, 80 and 6 years have I served my king. How now can I deny him? And he was, as a result of that response and reply, he was martyred, uh, burnt at the stake and then then, uh, killed. And it was through his testimony that more people became Christians as a result of that. So, in the face of death, there is also glory that can be seen. Even death reveals the glory of God. And of course it says in 1 Corinthians 15.26, death will be the last enemy that will be conquered by Christ. Even death reveals the glory of God. Now, we know from the text and from the passage that a message is sent to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. He waits two more days. I actually think that it's likely that Lazarus was already dead by the time Jesus gets the message. If you have a look at the calculations of the uh, communications between Jesus and Martha and Mary, uh, then I think Jesus knew that, Lazarus had already died by the time he gets the message. But he will also not be coerced as well. There are a number of passages in John where people put pressure on Jesus to do this or that and Jesus shows that he will not be coerced even though he follows the will of his father. At the marriage at Cana, um, we find in chapter 2 that uh, Mary puts some pressure on Jesus to, to help the people out. In chapter 7, the uh, brothers of Jesus are going up to the feast in Jerusalem and they say to him, you ought to go as well. But he resists, he will not be coerced. 
Eventually he does go though. And notice here as well, the sisters send a message to Jesus. They don't specifically ask him to come immediately, but it's implied. You note that when they have, uh, that when they meet him, they both say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Maybe there's a bit of an accusation there. I'm not sure. But Jesus does go at the right time. And so even death, a death in this case, becomes an opportunity to reveal God's glory again. And here I think we have an example of Christ to follow. Not, by the way, in raising people from the dead. Though, look, through the history of of the church, there are people that have tried, in a sense, to follow this application literally. But I mean specifically in doing all for the glory of God. I wonder if you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's probably not something that many younger Christians know, but there are probably a number of older believers that can answer and respond to this. The the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, and you get to learn this when you learn the catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How about you? Is that your aim or motivation in your work, in your ministry, in your family, in relationships, when you work, when you relax? For Jesus, this death was not a defeat or a failure, but another opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed. And it also points us to God's goal for the disciples of Christ. We know from chapter 11 that Jesus delays, but then he does go. And as usual, as we were reading through the passage, you might have picked up the disciples misunderstand. They see Jesus' delay as understandable. I mean, the Jews were out to try and get him. But then his decision to go is almost suicide. The Jews, as I mentioned in Jerusalem, wanted to kill him. And in chapter 10, just a little bit earlier, they tried. And Bethany is only just over three kilometres away from Jerusalem. And so Jesus responds with the saying about walking in the light in verses 9 and 10. Um, If we have a little quick recap of that one. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now, I think we can understand this at a couple of levels. And and you've got to realise, of course, that John is not just giving us the story of Lazarus because it's an amazing story and isn't that something people are interested to hear. There's always spiritual teaching here. There's always something that can help us. And so I think we can take this at a couple of levels. Jesus must work while there is still daylight of his earthly ministry. And in so doing, he will be safe. But there's a time coming where that will cease. But also for his disciples, if they walk in the light, they will be safe. Because you've got to recognise that it's John who gives us the I am sayings of Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. But those without that light would stumble and be in danger of injury. And also I think Jesus wants his disciples to learn to trust him more. He sees this situation 
as an opportunity for the disciples to believe more. This situation is for them to learn and grow too. And Jesus allows that our life of discipleship is a journey that we are going on with him. And of course then we have the the response of Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, although in his statement at this particular point in time there's probably not a lot of doubt. It may be resigned, but at least he says, let us also go that we may die with him. And of course, I think it's here also that John has these these depths of meaning because in a sense, Thomas spoke better than he knew. Uh, Yes, there is a truth in which he will indeed go and die with Christ. John chapter 12, the next chapter, there's a couple of verses that I think are very pertinent in this particular point in time, 24 and 26 of John chapter 12. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death to self, so that we may have the life of Christ. I have a book here which I brought up as well, Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, but it's titled A Chance to Die. And it's a story, actually interestingly, by uh, the same author as I mentioned earlier from Through Gates of Splendour, Elizabeth Elliot wrote this book as well about the life of another person, Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India for 55 years. And one of her claims to fame, although it's applied to her, was that she, in those 55 years, never took a furlough back to her homeland. She was an Irish missionary and she was completely devoted staying in India to serving her saviour. Let me give a little bit of a description about it. Everything we do should have the seed of eternity in it was an expression used by Amy Carmichael. Early on in the mission field Amy took in a little girl only five or six years old who had run away from the Hindu temple she was being raised as a temple, to be a temple prostitute. This began Amy's lifelong ministry of rescuing young girls from temple prostitution. Eventually, the ministry expanded to include boys and had a hospital to treat people in the surrounding areas. A strong family atmosphere was maintained and Amy, called Amma, was dearly loved by her children. Just before Amy died, temple prostitution was finally made illegal. Amy was a truly selfless woman whose ministry was not an easy one. I think we'd have to recognise as well that she was still a person as well. She had her foibles. There were countless setbacks, problems and struggles along the way. She was even criticised by some as having ulterior motives for rescuing these little girls from prostitution. Amy took up her cross and followed Jesus with her very life. A chance to die to self and to live for the Saviour. And uh, if I can encourage you to read those sorts of books that can be an inspiring and a challenge to us as well as we seek to walk that journey with Jesus along the way. Thirdly, I think this passage and this account of the raising of Lazarus demonstrates God's gift of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Because as you know from the story, eventually he gets to Bethany and he seeks to comfort Mary and Martha 
And of course they have lost a brother. Maybe he was the breadwinner also. Jesus feels for them in their loss. And in verse 38 it says, Jesus deeply moved. In verse 35 it says, of course, Jesus wept, the the shortest verse in the Bible. But Jesus was deeply moved. He wept. What can he do for them? What will he do for them? And then we come to verses 25 and 26. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, of course, I think again here too, as I've mentioned before, John is writing at multiple levels, two two levels here. There is, of course, the universal application of the many questions in John. If you you go through the the Gospel of John, you'll see them. In, In chapter 1, verse 38, two disciples come up to him and he asks them, what do you want? That, of course, is a question we must all consider. What is it we we really ultimately want? In chapter 3, verse 7, how can a man be born again? And in chapter 11, as we've been reading, verse 26, do you believe this? This, of course, is the, I would call it the crux question, the central question in the whole of the gospel. Do you believe this? You notice the the I am passages or the I am sayings in John. I referred to them a little bit earlier. In in chapter 6, verse 41, I am the bread. In 8.12, I am the light. In 8.58, I am. And in 11.25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. In the case of Lazarus, of course, Jesus proved that he is the life giver but more importantly, that he is the life. And you have to remember, of course, that miracles are signs that point to Jesus. Um, I made a mention a few weeks ago um, in terms of worship that some people pray for more of what they are lacking. You know, I'm lacking patience. Lord, give me patience. I'm lacking love. Lord, give me love. But that's not really true for us as believers. It should be simply that we need more of Jesus. We need to allow Christ to live in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Because when we are conformed to Christ, when we have Christ living in us, when his life is expressed through us, then we will have that love. Then we will have patience. Then we will have peace. Then we will have joy. So we ask the question, not have you received life, But have you received Christ? Is he living in you? He is the resurrection and the life. Now, I suppose it's a little bit cheeky, isn't it, to say say that this passage is about the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus because really Lazarus, poor old Lazarus, doesn't get much of a show in this one, in this passage, of course. And, And ultimately, of course, John knows that this passage is about Jesus. We don't know Lazarus's response when he comes out and uh, the grave clothes are taken off. Uh, was he speechless as well? What, what had he experienced? Had he seen the other side? You can imagine that if he was living today, he would be on every newspaper and probably every chat show that they could fit him onto. But that's not the, tape, not the case on the situation when the gospel was written. We do know that Uh, Later on in chapter 12, that Lazarus is reclining with Jesus at a meal 
And uh, in fact, interestingly enough, such was the effect of the raising of Lazarus that the Jews put a price on Lazarus's head as well. But we don't get an interview with Lazarus. We don't know what his response is. So we just have to, in a sense, be content that this was not really about Lazarus. This is about who Christ is and what it means for us. And so I want to finish with a couple of questions in this part anyway before we spend some time in communion. Have you received the one who is the resurrection and the life? Are you his disciple, dying daily to self and walking in the light? And are you glorifying God in all that you do? I pray that these questions and this passage will be and have been a blessing and will be a blessing for you this morning. We come now to a a time of communion. Uh, I trust that uh, as you, if you were listening on Friday, that uh, John mentioned it. So if you have your elements, If you haven't, maybe now's the chance to go and get them, but I trust that in various circumstances and situations that you find yourself in that you've got something that you can share with. Either you may be by yourself, in which case you'll take it on your own, or if you're with others as well, that you can share together. I'm going to grab them and um, and pray. I have here the cup. And some bread. Uh, If we go to a very familiar passage that you will know, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we have a passage on the Lord's Supper, and in verses 23 following, for I received, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, I've broken the bread, but I want to pray for both the bread and the cup because uh, Nolene and Michaela are going to play a song, some music, and that will give us an opportunity to, and certainly for you, sitting with some others or by yourself, to reflect and in your own time together while the music's playing, take that opportunity to pray, maybe, to be together, to take the elements and to thank the Lord as we do so. And then when that song is finished, then the rest of the team is going to come up and finish with the last worship song. But don't rush this through. Take this time to be able to reflect on Christ as the resurrection and the life. This uh, is a chance for us, in a sense, to have a supper with Christ. And as I mentioned in chapter 12 of John that Lazarus is reclining in a meal. We are, in a sense, also in a meal that we can share with Christ today, with each other and with Christ, as we remember what he did and also the fact that it says there in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a great sense of expectation that we have as we share together in the communion meal. Uh, This morning, wherever you may be, so I just want to pray and then for both, as I said, the, the bread and the, and the cup and then Nolene McCallum will play the song while we share together wherever you may be. Thank you, Lord, for this time where we have an opportunity, in a sense, to share a meal together, but also we share it with Christ. And we 
think of that fantastic promise that is there that we will do this until he comes again and we have a great hope as believers. So I pray that it may be a blessing for us as we share this bread, whatever form it may be this morning, for people that are gathered in their homes in different places, for the cup as well as we share, that we can remember in a simple way the hope that we possess, the love that we have for Christ and the the faith that we have looking forward to what will be. And so we ask this and we thank the Lord for it. In Jesus' name, amen.